What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health. Tuesdays, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern on Pacifica Affiliates, WXOJLPFM, Northampton, Massachusetts, and KWMD in Kasilov and Anchorage, Alaska. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project. Streaming, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Thanks for tuning in to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today we have uh, Joe Goodbread. Uh, Joe is um, a very experienced uh, counselor who's worked for years with people going through madness and extreme states of consciousness. He's a senior faculty member at the Process Work Institute and was one of the founders of the Process Work training uh, program. Process Work is a school of psychology and group work and organizational work that actually I'm a student in right now. And uh, Joe's going to be telling us more about what process work is all about. And um, he has written um, several books, including The Dream Body Toolkit and Radical Intercourse. So thanks a lot for joining us today on Madness Radio. Joe Goodbread. Hi. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's it's great to have you here. You're one actually one of my teachers in the program, so I'm kind of I'm like doubly shy to be interviewing you. I think. Well, I feel like you've been one of my teachers too. So, uh, but yes. Oh, that's thanks. <laughs> that's that's really that's nice to hear. Thank you. So, um, well, I, I think that um, in the world of psychology, there are so many different flavors. There's cognitive behavioral, there's psychodynamic, there's gestalt, there's all these different, it's very confusing for people on the outside. And I was, I was wondering maybe if you, because I know that um, people may have heard about Jungian psychology, the, the approach that um, Carl Jung um, developed and um, process work is very much based in Jungian psychology and influenced by Carl Jung's work. But maybe we can start out just by uh, talking a little bit about what is process-oriented psychology or, or process work. Sure. Um, <clears throat> I think that's right, but Jung was, uh, was, was the original influence. Uh, Arnold Mindell was the uh, developed uh, process work back in the, uh, in the late 1970s. He was um, a student of uh, Jungian psychology and then later a training analyst at the Jung Institute in, in Zurich. And um, he was uh, he was also uh, a physicist. He had been studying physics at MIT and then at the Swiss Federal Polytechnic. And um, he was interested in the uh, first of all in the in the aspect of Jungian psychology that really brought dreams to life. That um, that uh, Jung was less interested in. Um, analyzing intellectually what was happening in people's uh, processes in their lives and was more interested in uh, having them have a dynamic relationship to the unconscious through the, this process that he called uh, active imagination. So, for instance, if I would dream of, uh, oh, I don't know, if I would dream of a chicken, for instance, that um, where Freud might have analyzed the chicken and, and found its uh, symbolic meaning for me, Jung would have encouraged me to uh, have a, a conversation with that chicken and to try to um, understand it as a, a living part of my own experience, my own world of experience. Well, Arnie um, was very interested in, in active imagination, and he was interested also in um, working with body experience, since he had a lot of clients who had... Uh, various uh, physical illnesses that they were interested in working on. To make a long story short, he saw a strong parallel between subjective experience of, uh, of uh, body symptoms and uh, dreaming. So he uh, developed techniques for doing active imagination with body symptoms as though they were dream figures. And uh, from that grew the first... Uh, beginnings of process work. So that's a very um, different kind of approach, the idea you dream about a chicken and then you, you wake up out of the dream and then, hey, let's, let's actually have a conversation with this chicken using our imagination. Is, is the idea that, um, that dreams or madness or extreme states actually have some kind of meaning 
inside of them that if we actually try and meet them and explore them and engage them, they'll actually unfold? And then how is that different than kind of like the mainstream mental health approach to madness or extreme states? Well, it's, it's, the, uh, it's the idea that um, what you're calling the mainstream approach is a medical model. And the medical model says that um, views experience as either normal or pathological. And things that it views as normal, it says, let's leave them be, that's not our province. And things that it views as pathological, it says, let's heal them, because uh, we want to restore somebody's function. But you're quite right. If you look at uh, any kind of experience as just that, as experience that could be unfolded and uh, explored to reveal its, uh, its, its, root, its root or its inner core, that even the most disturbing of experiences have are both meaningful and that meaning is accessible as a, as a part of, of immediate experience. You don't need to just analyze it and uh, explain it and then uh, try to integrate it. You can actually have a dynamic relationship to that experience. Now, process work is sort of theoretically and philosophically very much a, a spiritual or mystical kind of approach on one level. And one of the foundations of it is Taoism, uh, Chinese philosophy of opposites and change and time and how everything fits together and flows together in a kind of a balancing um, process. Can you tell us about that and how that is expressed in the way that process work would approach something like depression or someone who has, a, say, a, a problem with eating um, or who is having a lot of anxiety or has an experience that would be called psychotic or extreme? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. You know, Taoism uh, uh, is, uh, you could talk for hours about that, but there was this cat, Lao Tzu, who was uh, back, God knows when, a couple of few hundred years uh, before Christ. And he um, he was, uh, uh, he, he, in China then, uh, Confucianism was a big thing. And Confucianism said that everything had to be in the right relationship to each other, and you, <clears throat> excuse me, and you had to call things by their right name, and you had to have uh, the right relations in the family. And if something wasn't working out, you had to find out what was wrong in those relationships and set it right. And Lao Tse came along, and he says, "Well, that's interesting, but it's more interesting to see what people actually are doing. To use awareness instead of uh, prescriptions." And, to, and so if somebody is acting strange, instead of saying they're out of order and have to be corrected, let's see uh, what exactly they are doing and let's help them get to the bottom of their own experience. And this was, this was very appealing to, to Arnie because he also found that if you honored people where they were at and then went further with it, didn't stop where they were at, but went further and helped them become even more of what they were, then meanings would reveal themselves. So, for instance, if you take a depression, one of the really common kinds of depression is where somebody just is very listless and, and their head, typically they, they'll sit in a chair and be very still and their head will go down. And everybody around them tries to cheer them up, which virtually never works. So Arnie thought, okay, let's follow where they're at, and um, above all, let's look at what their bodies are doing. So if the person's head was down, he might gently suggest, uh, let your head go way, way down, and let your mind go down also. Let everything go down. And let's let go of the idea that uh, going down is bad or dangerous. And then he would observe the person as they went down. And maybe they would uh, sigh, a big sigh. And maybe they would smile. And maybe they would just get very still. And he would encourage that. And very, very often, the person would get into an ecstatic state at the bottom of that depression. Like, for instance, a very common experience in depression is that a person has somehow... Uh, it's forbidden for them to have deep body experiences because of cultural or family values. And just having the freedom to really explore what it's like to be in your own body can be extremely relieving. But if you get stuck at what Arnie calls an edge, 
to really immersing yourself in that experience and letting it unfold itself, then that's a depression. That turns very state-like, and you're in a sort of inner war between something that wants to pick you up and make you more functional and happier and, and to say uh, please and thank you and something else that's really desperately interested in exploring what it's like to be in your own body. So it sounds like a lot of it is the kind of the courage um, as a helper or a counselor or someone who's working on yourself or helping other people to really kind of go against what might be um, sort of the common sense or, or established view of how to help people and really go in a kind of a counterintuitive way, which reminds me of, of Taoism, which is very sort of trickster and paradoxical and kind of turning turning things on their head. Absolutely. Absolutely. That uh, you, you use the word common sense, and I, I think that's really right, that at a certain, I think that um, that certain states of consciousness are, first of all, seem troublesome because they go against common sense, and secondly, the attempt to bring them into line with common sense can actually make them uh, more troublesome. That very often... Um, what what we're calling an extreme state or madness is the emergence of uh, an experience that is countercultural that goes against either could be as I said before personal culture or family culture or a spiritual culture um, and is really an essential part of our creativity or, or our emergent awareness and uh, the prejudice against that can actually turn it into something that looks pathological. This really re makes me think of an experience, a very powerful experience that I had with um, a process worker, Amy Mindell, who um, has developed process work and works closely with um, her husband, Arnie. And I, I went into a session with her, uh, this was, I guess, about nine years ago. And I was saying that I, you know, I was feeling very depressed and I talked about, it, I talked about how I was, I was feeling suicidal, um, which is a very scary kind of thing for a counselor or helper or anyone to be to be hearing and um you know we she talked and she has this very gentle spacious kind of welcoming heartful presence which i've also noticed is a really important part of, of process work and so she invited me well let's you know let's um explore let's let's do just what you said joe let's let's explore going into that experience of being suicidal what would it be like to in imagination to um uh be suicidal to commit suicide which is a very wildly <laughs> counterintuitive kind of thing it's hard to even to talk about it. it seems so so strange but she encouraged me to just imagine um collapsing on the floor and, and these sort of things sort of happened spontaneously and i had these very vivid kind of violent images but then when I was in that place of stillness and just lying on the floor there and just imagining myself and really getting deep into this experience, this, this altered state really of being dead, I did have a very strong, um, like you described, ecstatic experience. I had a very spiritual experience where it was kind of like nothing mattered anymore and I felt very connected to the universe. I felt very accepting. And I really just shifted right out of my depression and um, and the suicidal feelings that I had. And it was a very powerful illustration of the theoretical ideas that we're talking about. And um, it's uh, stayed with me ever since, that, that experience. Isn't that amazing that, uh, that something is, uh, is, is socially unacceptable? I mean, in a lot of places, just talking about suicide is like a taboo. And uh, that actually having the courage to uh, unfold the experience, to go deeper into it, and not to be satisfied that that just means that suicide just means killing yourself. That the that one of the one of the um, it's a very touching story. One one of the aspects of Taoism um, that I think is absolutely mind blowing is this idea that uh, awareness is more important than doing something. So that if you are disturbed, if anybody is disturbed, whether I'm a therapist or a counselor, I'm disturbed by something a client is doing, uh, or in myself, if I'm disturbed by an aspect of my experience, instead of trying to do something about it, to just focus more awareness on it, 
that itself can have a very healing effect. Yeah, the word healing actually comes from wholeness, so it's often awareness is what can lead us to having a sense of the, the bigger the bigger picture. Joe, talk talk about the importance of the body. You mentioned that Arnie Mendel, Arnold Mendel had this um, very interesting um, realization that our night dreams are connected to body symptoms. And it seems like a lot of times in process-oriented psychological counseling, you'd end up doing kind of like a body work or you end up doing like theater or role-playing that involve very dynamic body. And this is totally different than um, the medical model and a lot of conventional and traditional psychotherapies. And it seems like it goes against the grain of our culture, which is to have a very controlled attitude towards our body. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Oh, I'm smiling from ear to ear. It's one of my favorite subjects. And, um, you, when you were talking about your experience with Amy Mandel, you mentioned that she had you lie on the floor. And that itself is a radical thing to do. Most psychotherapy takes place in chairs, in relatively narrow chairs, armchairs, where the body can't move. So um, one, of the, one of the great ideas that Arnie came up with, and that is also, I think, shared by other uh, modalities of therapy like NLP, neuro linguistic programming, is that there's a big difference between experiencing something in your body and just thinking about it. And that um, one of the uh, one of the things that Arnie noticed was that uh, if you have a symptom and you just try to do active imagination with it by talking to it, that's seldom as interesting as actually getting into the experience itself. So, for instance. If I, um, uh, I've been known to get paranoid at times. Who hasn't in this modern life? And um, one way of working on paranoia is checking out reality and assuring yourself that uh, there really isn't anything coming after you and there really aren't any voices that are, that are telling you this or that. But uh, a more constructive approach, uh, very seldom works, a more constructive approach to paranoia is to say, okay, exactly what is following me? What do I imagine is following me? Well, <clears throat> it's a small, let's say it's a small, wiry, furtive kind of fellow. So I say, okay, I'm going to try playing that fellow, and let's see what he wants. So this is something that happens in your imagination. You, you start to imagine, like, well, what is this thing that's following me? And then you, ha you have an image pop into your head. That's right. And then I get a feeling in my body. Well, I'm, I'm not a wiry person. I'm like kind of, uh, I'm like a 62-year-old guy with a bit of, I like to eat a lot, so my belly is kind of, uh, uh, let's say it's not wiry. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I get into being a wiry character, and suddenly my body feels different. So I try to walk like that guy, and I try to hold my body like that guy. And then I realize this is an aspect of my experience that I don't identify with, that there's something in me that's very... Um, okay, you notice now I'm, I'm trying to describe it, and my words start... Uh, I run out of words. That's because I'm experiencing it in my body. And so it comes back to what you were saying about the limitations of talking about it. Exactly. And, and that actually you have exactly. to get into the experience. You know, the, the idea of if you have paranoia or voices that, um, you know, maybe you can control them by sort of checking out that, okay, the voices aren't there or looking in the closet, there's actually nothing there and talking to your friends and getting a reality That's what check. our parents tell us to do, right? That's what our parents tell us to do. And I think that's look what... In the mon look in the closet. There's no monsters in there. Exactly. And, and there is this movement that we've talked about a number of times on the show, the, the hearing voices movement in Europe. And it's starting to, it's starting to get going in the U.S. a little bit too. We have a hearing voices group that the Freedom Center co-sponsors in Massachusetts now. And there's a group in, in uh, Wisconsin that's doing it. But the idea is that actually listen to the voices that create a relationship, dialogue. You don't have to just do whatever they say, but start to explore what the meaning is behind that. So I'm, so I'm wondering, I mean, one... Um, uh, maybe criticism or devil's advocate would be saying, well, well, what about, isn't this dangerous? I mean, if you just sort of tell somebody to go into your depression or listen to your voices, can't you potentially make things worse or get them? Yes. I, I, and I think that in the, um, in psychiatry, they talk about not uh, colluding with a so-called psychotic experience. You don't want to actually, cause it'll make the person more, more psychotic or more extreme. Uh -huh. And, and what, what would you say to that? 
Oh, that's a, that's a great question. I, said, I jumped on it and I said, yes, if you just one-sidedly side with the voices, that's not very useful. I think that um, I want to back up for a second and, and say, as a therapist or counselor, what is my role? Is it to get rid of the voices? Is it to get people to identify with the voices? I would say that my role in general is to help people relate to the voices. And you made a good point. You said the point that the, the goal is not to, to just obey what the voices are saying, but to explore their meaning and to get into uh, what they want and making a relationship to our inner figures and to our experiences that are our non-mainstream experiences, or that making that relationship is the important thing. And I think it requires you to have a, a foot in each world that you need to, as a, at least as a facilitator or a therapist, you need to bring in the awareness that, yes, we have these experiences and they're meaningful and we need to explore them and we somehow at some point need to get along with the mainstream world and we won't always have the therapist there to mediate between those two things. So I think that um, uh, an immediate goal is, is to get into the experiences to explore them, to give them some breathing room, because usually they've been cut off, whether by collective judgment or by medications or whatever. But then a second step, which I think is just as important, is to try to build a bridge between the two worlds, because after all, uh, I think that one of, if I had a, a value or a bottom line around extreme states, I would say that uh, I want people to be more autonomous, I don't want them to be um, victimized by their states. I don't want them to have to move to mountaintops in order to enjoy their inner experience. I, would, I hope and pray that people can take over uh, the mediation of those experiences, that they can speak for those voices and also speak to those who don't understand the meaningfulness of those voices. And that is that I feel is uh, a more sustainable approach than either marginalizing the voices or uh, romanticizing them, as I feel some therapeutic systems have done. So you've been doing this work for more than 25 years, and so have you seen consistently that people are helped by this approach? That someone who maybe is has been plagued by depression or who's struggling with voices is this something that's effective and i know that it's it's hard sometimes to quantify or to create research studies that say okay this works and and here let's use it as let's use those studies to promote process work or maybe other other approaches aren't as effective and they don't have the studies to back them up but what are some what's your sense of how effective this is and and maybe you can just give us some more examples of how you've seen people grow or change in their relationship i I mean, effectiveness, as you point out, is a very is a very uh, elusive uh, term because one person's uh, what one person says is effective, another person would say is just self-deception. So, um, but I, I there was one one guy who I worked with for many years um, who really taught me a lot about effectiveness. And he was somebody who uh, had all sorts of diagnoses, and he would wind up in a psychiatric hospital periodically and have to uh, restart his life each time. He, he, I think his his official diagnosis was like bipolar or something like that. So he would he was a wild guy. He was a very energetic character. Uh, this was in Zurich many years ago. And he, Zurich was kind of a very staid and uh, measured sort of place. And he would do some wild stuff and get get himself thrown in the hospital and uh, generally lose all of his relationships. He would have to restart his life from the ground up each time. And we worked together for many years. And uh, we argued sometimes. Sometimes we had, like, fights. We had... Uh, we had great times together. We followed his experience. Sometimes he thought that I was crazy, and sometimes I thought he was crazy. Anyhow, the pattern of what emerged from what happened from that was that um, his stays in the hospital got shorter. 
he began to know when it was time for him to take some time out from his everyday life and go into the hospital. And the stays got shorter, and his relationships began to um, bridge those hospital stays. So instead of having to start from scratch, uh, he had friends, and uh, they would uh, understand that it was time for him to take a little break, and he would come out, and they would continue with their relationships. And instead of having to find a new job each time, his employer became... uh, understood that uh, again that he needed breaks that he be, that he had these energetic periods where uh, it was not easy for him to be uh, working and, and relating to people so he got a very special kind of relief he found a frame for his experiences that didn't uh, didn't uh, destroy those experiences it didn't marginalize them uh, but it also he was also quite aware of the need for continuity. That was also part of his life. Joe, do you find that when you work with people and explore and help unfold their um, extreme states or their madness experiences, that, that often that there is a spirituality that's going on there? Because we, we sometimes talk about this mysterious connection between madness and um, spiritual awakening. I was wondering what your 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 experience has been in in working with clients over the years about that. Uh, mm, that's a difficult question. What do you mean by spiritual? Well, I mean, do people do you find that maybe someone who seems very disconnected or someone who fe- seems like they're very troubled or anguished or have a lot of anxiety that you work with them and then they have realizations about the nature of the cosmos or they see visions or they have a sense of energetic aliveness or they feel that they can do healing kinds of work with people and that it's become something that was a negative experience suddenly has this positive side to it. Uh, yes, I think that that is definitely that is definitely a tendency, and um, the reason I'm hesitant is I think it's easy to romanticize those states, those experiences, in a way that could keep the person more isolated. So if somebody has a spiritual experience, I say yes to the spiritual experience, and I'm also in the, in the back of my mind I want to know how they're going to bring that out into the world. Do they have to become a hermit? Do they have to form a cult? Do they have to cut themselves off? Well, I want them to have that choice somehow. I'll give you an example. Um, many years ago, a psychiatrist friend of, me, of mine uh, brought uh, one of his uh, clients to me because uh, he didn't know what to do with her. She was having these experiences of uh, spontaneous movements in her body where uh, she was sort of a mainstream average sort of person and uh, didn't have any knowledge as far as I knew of any kind of spiritual practices but every once in a while her body would give would have these sort of contractions and from a, from a mainstream standpoint you want to say what on, what on earth is happening with you and um, so he brought her, and uh, we were standing together. And I said, "Let's see what happens. Let's see what your body does." And she had these so suddenly, warmth. It was just like, like kind of like a spasm or something moved through her body, and like her limbs flailed. <laughs> it was an amazing thing to see. You know, you could understand why it disturbed her. So we talked about it, and then I said, well, you know, there's a, um, do you know about a guy named Muktananda in Siddha Yoga? She said, no. I said, well, there are certain, um, there are people who uh, engage in the spiritual practice who would die for, for experiences like you're having, like the sign that the spirit is, is with them, that they're having a genuine spiritual experience as they have these uncontrolled body movements called Kriyas. And uh, it's a sign of impending enlightenment. And she got really happy when she heard that. When she came in, she was like uh, upset because she thought there was something desperately wrong with her, that her psychiatrist couldn't heal 
And I think she saw me as some kind of faith healer, or I don't know what she saw me as. But that she had a context, a meaningful and even a valuable context for what was happening to her really made her happy. Now, is this somebody who should become, who should then go and immerse herself in Siddha Yoga? I don't know. And uh, my hope would be that she would bring that experience into her life and inject a little bit of spontaneity and believe in what her body was doing, that that had a meaning that transcended the demands of everyday life, of being a housewife or whatever she was. And that I call spirituality. That's That would be authentic spirituality. To romanticize it and say that uh, it's a special connection to God Yes, but not just. So I guess in a way I'm kind of a materialist. I believe that um, that uh, that I, I think I'm not so much uh, awed by pure spiritual experience. I always want to see it in the context of somebody's everyday life. Well, I like what you said before about bridging the worlds and having a relationship between ordinary reality and this kind of far-out uh, reality and experiences. Joe, tell us about the... Um, the way in which uh, process-oriented psychology and process work address what uh, are called rank um, rank issues in, in, in process work. Because I know that a lot of psychotherapies kind of and psychologies don't really talk about, say, racism or homophobia or sexism or even the power imbalance between a therapist and a client. And I know that process work has a very sophisticated understanding of this. And how does that come into play when you're working with, uh, working with people? Oh, man, what a question. I could talk on that for hours. It's one of my favorite subjects, but I'll try to make it brief. <laughs> um, yeah, one of the, one of the, um, God, what a question. Arnie Mindell um, got very, was, one of his central interests was, uh, let's call it the social aspects of, uh, of uh, psychology, the, um, the the traditional uh, approach to psychotherapy, which I which happened to me when I was a kid, actually when I was a teenager, I was having relationship difficulties, and I went to see a therapist, and this was like a um, an analytical therapist, and she sat in this big chair with a pad and pencil and a pen, and she took notes. And I was I felt like a like a fish out of water squirming around and needing to reveal everything about myself. And it was a it was a it was kind of a nasty experience. I felt if I hadn't been so desperate to get help, I would never have put up with it. I felt there was a huge power imbalance. It was her place and it was her setting and she set the tone of the whole thing. And uh, the implication was if I wanted to, to I wanted my life to be better. I had to submit to what she was doing. And uh, Arnie got, was very interested in um, how, among other things, how power differentials can sometimes make people act crazy. So, for instance, I know that I acted a little crazier in the presence of this analyst than I did, say, with my colleagues at work. So uh, and I think all of us have that experience. If you're with somebody who you feel or who acts like they have power over you, um, it's hard to talk, your mouth gets dry, you fidget, and uh, you begin to lose the ability to talk about your experience. You feel like you just want to get out of there. So to make a long story short, um, one of the theories of, uh, of uh, schizophrenia is called the double bind theory. It was from a guy named Gregory Bateson had this idea that um, if somebody was put in a situation where no matter what you did, you got punished, and this happened as a child, and somebody did this to you who you couldn't get away from, who had power over you, like a parent, for instance, then that would make you start acting crazy and thinking crazy because if no matter what you do, you get punished. There's no right thing to say or to do. You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So you start sounding kind of like random and, and disorganized. Well, 
uh, I feel that, uh, this is my personal view, is that one of the things that can happen to all of us as therapists or as psychiatrists is if we're unconscious of the effect that our power has over our clients, that we can make people feel and sound crazier than they need to. That I can set up a situation where the person, uh, I'm actually restricting my client's freedom by acting like a big dude and expecting them to follow all of my instructions. Now, if you translate this into a situation where somebody's been hospitalized because they were doing something that uh, where they, they felt they needed help or they or somebody else felt that they were going to hurt themselves or hurt somebody else uh they're in a in a in a you're that's that's you're in a in a in a difficult position at that point somebody or something you're submitting either submitting yourself to something that has power over you or somebody else has taken power over you and if, as therapists, we don't wake up to, to the effect of our own power, we can actually make the situation worse without knowing that we're doing it. And that's something that I feel that, um, that Arnie's theory of, of rank and power um, really has something to teach all of us who are involved in, in any aspect of mental health or therapy. Joe, is this related to the idea of, of sometimes not just looking at the individual, but also looking at the people around them and the context and the system that they're a part of? Yeah, that's, that's great. That's good. Thanks for mentioning that. There was Arnie's um, original um, book on, uh, on extreme states was called City Shadows, and that came out of... Um, a project that he did working with uh, uh, clients that uh, a social service agency considered to be very difficult to work with. And uh, he, they, over a period of, of a couple of weeks, they brought these clients to the social service agency and Arnie worked with them and paid special attention to the way that uh, their complaints or their or their difficulties fit in, fit into, or clashed with the social, uh, the social milieu, the social system that they were immersed in, and he found that um, a lot of times people's difficulties uh, only made sense in terms of the culture or the the social system that they were in. For instance, uh, I remember one of the people was uh, was someone who had a lot of religious experience and she would call up the um members of the city council of this of this town the swiss town she would call them up at three o'clock in the morning because she would have her she had religious enlightenments and she wanted to turn them on to jesus and it could it was such an incredible enlightenment that she couldn't wait till till uh morning when most people wake up and of course this got her into trouble but one of the things that uh, is really interesting is that uh, Switzerland used to be quite uh, a church-going sort of place, but in the years uh, when Arnie was doing this project, uh, church attendance had gone way down, and the Swiss began to see themselves much more as, uh, as non-religious. So in a way, her experience was a counterbalance. It was a, you would almost say that uh, if she didn't exist that uh, the surrounding culture almost had to create her in order to uh, be able to reflect on its own uh, experiences around church and religion. And this is true of, of lots and lots and lots of, of um, what we call extreme states as their manifestations of uh, can be looked at as manifestations of things that society as a whole represses. Does that then mean that to help people, you need to sort of work on the larger society as a whole? I think you need to do everything you can do. I think you need to work on society, and uh, you also need to help people who are clashing with society to be better clashers, if you know what I mean. I think it can be uh, it can be um, uh, downputting to just see somebody as a victim of a social system. So uh, I would also 
hope to have people be able to defend themselves better against the pressures of society. Plus, I think it also there's a responsibility on the part of therapists to turn around and take a good square look at society and think maybe I need to do something. I need to be socially engaged. It's not sufficient for me just to sit in my practice and try to change people so that they conform to social norms. One of the things we were talking about at the in the beginning before the interview started was your research and experience and views on the importance of conflict as part of what makes extreme states happen and uh, plays a role in madness. And I know that from my own work as a counselor and in groups that often what happens is that someone has some weird experience or something that's hard to understand or difficult, but then what what they get into is a conflict with the people around them. And so the conflict is almost as important to deal with as whatever it is that's going on inside of the person. Yeah, that's such an important point. I mean, that we could do a whole interview just on that. But in a, in a nutshell, I think that's what you're pointing out is really right, that uh, one of the reasons why psychiatry exists is because these experiences bring us into conflict with others. If it wasn't for that conflict, uh, people would let us be or, or offer us some kind of uh, safety. And um, so there's actually, I see two dimensions to that. One is that um, having experiences that, uh, that, are, that contrast strongly with mainstream experience can bring us into conflict, plus having everyday conflicts can also put us into these experience, can put us back into these experiences. Now, one of the, if we, uh, to just take a little, I love Gregory Bateson, so excuse me if I'm being a little too intellectual about this, but this idea of the double bind, that no matter what you do, you're doing something wrong, uh, that that can lead somebody to act in ways that look psychotic or mad. Um, as I said before, all of us have that. When we're in a fight with somebody, if we get into an ar- a strong argument, one of the first things that uh, we do is we tell each other, well, you must be crazy. If you think that, you're crazy. If you think that, uh, that you can just park your car on my property, you're nuts. <laughs> right? It's like a, we throw, that, we throw those, those words around really easily. And... Um, the reason we do that is because one of the strongest things you can do in a conflict is to question the other person's hold on reality. If I want to win, uh, let's say that we're fighting over a cow, that I think it's my cow and you think it's your cow, um, there's different ways to do it. We can find the brand and see if uh, you know you have actually a claim on the cow, or a more uh, a quicker strategy is for you to try to convince me that I don't understand reality and that if I really did understand reality that um, you I would see that it's your cow and I would give it to you so that a lot of conflict is oriented at attacking one another's sense of what's real and what's not real and in fact you could begin to feel quite crazy in certain conflicts it seems like systems of oppression are really based on this too. People who are in oppressed or one down positions like being black in a racist society or being queer in a homophobic society, that part of what keeps that in place is convincing the person who won down that they're kind of crazy and they just need to keep quiet because they don't have a grasp of reality. Sure. That's right. That's one of the greatest uh, instruments of oppression is to have the other person internalize your judgments about them. <laughs> like... Uh, if I, you're getting me on my political high horse now, <laughs> but yes, and I, I think that, um, but on an, on a, on another scale, I feel one of my political positions is that if we would all get more comfortable with conflict and learn how to be better and cleaner fighters, then uh, I feel that the mental health of society as a whole would be a lot better. I'm often asking myself, what is it that people need and what is it that people need? And so we've created all these different opportunities. And one of the things that I do now is I teach a facilitation 
workshop because I find that people really need tools to help them deal with groups that otherwise get into conflict or don't know how to move forward or deal with people who are perceived as disruptive or listen. And, and it is so needed in our, in our culture. And one of the things that I know is a basis of um, process work is this idea of democracy, of deep democracy, that we really need to just get in there and express all the different parts of us, not just how we vote, but how we dream and what our feelings are. And that means we're going to have to get comfortable with conflict. And it doesn't just mean, well, let's just let it rip and let's have as much conflict as possible. But like you said, learning how to have conflict in an effective way or a healthier way or with more awareness. Yeah. I think so, I think so too, and that that's one of the one of my projects. I just uh, completed a, a, a manuscript that I call "Befriending Conflict," and um, it's about uh, it gives techniques for working on yourself before you get in before you approach a conflict, so that you can be more comfortable uh, when you do get into conflict and keep your wits about you and how you can also practice safer conflict, that you don't have to really um, attack your opponent so vigorously if you, real, if you have uh, a good connection to yourself before you get into it. And these are very valuable skills that all of us can use and also can be helpful for people in the mental health system in dealing with problems or things that develop before they reach the, the point of extreme states or, or going into the hospital or, or anything like that. You know, the Swiss have been, uh, haven't had a, a war for a couple of hundred years. And uh, he th- Jung thought that one reason why they didn't uh, have wars was that they were always fighting with each other. That, they were such, that the Swiss were such a contentious bunch of people that... Uh, that uh, that, that kept them out of, from, from meeting the big ones. Joe, we don't have a lot of time left, and I wanted to just ask you, uh, do you feel like this approach, the idea, the fundamental idea of, of, of understanding, exploring, entering into the meaning that is going on or potential meaning that's going on in an extreme state, do you think that that approach is growing? How sort of successful has process-oriented psychology been in, in getting a hearing in the mental health system? Is it something that, that you think is a, is a shift in the culture or changes in the way people are starting to become more open to these points of view? Uh, I think there's two... There's, uh, I, I see it like two weather systems that are uh, contending with each other. One is a more psychological approach to, uh, to extreme states, of which process work is certainly one. And I know that uh, it has gotten a hearing. I know that Jean-Claude and Arlene Odergon in England have worked, and some of the other people have worked with the mental health system there, and Michal uh, Duda in Warsaw has worked uh, with a psychiatric hospital in Poland, and um, Rosemary Shinkwin in uh, Cork in Ireland is a chief psychiatrist at a, at a psychiatric hospital there and a student of process work. So there has been a lot of, and, and uh, Cass Robinson and I work with a um, transitional housing project here in Portland, the mental health agency. So yes, there is a lot of interest and a lot of possibility. On the other hand, I feel that the, the medicalization uh, of uh, psychiatry uh, is like uh, a bulldozer, a big 2,000-horsepower bulldozer that uh, is in danger of knocking down all other approaches in terms of funding and in terms of acceptability to insurance uh, groups and stuff. So I think it's... Uh, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I Sometimes I think... Uh, I feel it's an almost hopeless project that the that the, the emphasis on on drugs and and medical approaches may just eradicate all the rest of it. I don't know. What gives you hope though? What gives me hope is that I see that the people like to explore experience. And uh I think Cash Robinson has been very helpful to me. She she and I uh, conduct a, a group at a transitional housing project, and uh, we have a lot. We work with a lot of people who are uh, just in off the streets. A lot of them are unmedicated or have been uh, 
been the revolving door system in and out of hospitals and jails for the past 30 years. And uh, we're learning how to do this work in a way that doesn't call for a um, conversion of the system. That we can do it. Uh, we can do it uh, in very tiny doses, in a way that really helps everybody and doesn't uh, put down uh, the practitioners who have been working in more mainstream sorts of ways. So if I see any future for this, it's through helping people get through very difficult situations rather than trying to convert them to new ways of thinking about things. Joe, tell us about um, your work and how people can get in touch with you, and if they want to find out more about process work, what, where they could go. Uh, to learn more about process work, I recommend uh, the uh, um, website of the Process Work Institute of Portland. That's www.processwork.org. Arnie and Amy Mendel's website uh, has a lot of really good information on it. That's www.aamindel.net. And uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with me, um, I don't. Uh, I'm still living in the 20th century, and uh, you can get a hold of me by email at uh, jgoodbread. That's J G O O D B R E A D at gmail.com and uh, I'm reasonably good at answering emails but it can take a long time sometimes Joe thank you so much for joining us today on Madness Radio well thank you so much Will it's been great and uh, a great interview and uh, thank you for giving me the space to express some of my views of things you've been listening to an interview with uh, Joe Goodbread he's a senior faculty member at the Process Work Institute of Portland he has 25 years experience working with extreme states, um, as well as working with groups and individuals. He's one of the founders of the Process Work uh, training programs in the U.S. and in Switzerland, and his books include The Dream Body Toolkit and Radical Intercourse. You can get in touch with him at jgoodbread at gmail.com. Uh, that's uh, all the time we have this week on Madness Radio. Thanks a lot for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio broadcasts every Tuesday, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern on Pacifica Affiliates, WXOJLPFM, Northampton, Massachusetts, and KWMD, Kasila, and Anchorage, Alaska. Produced by peer-run mental health communities, freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, to help us get broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net.